Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Movie Geeks United. Ileana Douglas is one of our most unique and effervescent actresses. On screen, she's a life force, and her boundless enthusiasm for the craft infects her performances and her audience. There's a reason why her force of personality looms large on the screen. It's because it was in many ways shaped by her lifelong devotion to movies. It's there in her work in films like Cape Fear, Grace of My Heart, Goodfellas, Ghost World, To Die For, in television and web series like Action, Easy to Assemble, and The Skinny, in the invaluable work she does for the Turner Classic Movies channel. And it's in her new book, a memoir of sorts, titled I Blame Dennis Hopper, and other stories from a life lived in and out of the movies, a rollicking, moving, instructive, and wildly entertaining journey through the touchstones of her life that reads like a movie unto itself. For the next hour, Ileana and I touch upon a few of the anecdotes that are lovingly recalled and detailed in her book, the time she spent with her grandfather, Melvin Douglas, on the set of Hal Ashby's Being There, her grueling assault scene opposite Robert De Niro in Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear, and what exactly she blames Dennis Hopper for. But the book contains riches far beyond these, a strange and transcendent encounter with Marlon Brando that ended in mutual tears, the life-changing guidance and support she received from the likes of Roddy McDowell, and the many lessons related to her craft that they don't teach you about in acting class. Ileana is herself the ultimate movie geek, and it was a tremendous pleasure to welcome her to our program. Enjoy. Just to let you know, we're recording, but there's nobody listening in. It's just you and I. We can't say definitively, no one, because the government could be listening. (laughs) That's always a possibility. Today's a magical day. Dennis Hopper's birthday. I know. I was thinking about that synchronicity and being able to talk to you on this day in particular. It's a, it's it's incredible. You must have some stardust because he's definitely been following me this whole tour. It's been amazing. Yeah, I would imagine. Obviously, by the title of your book, which is so fantastic, I love your I I love you generally, but I, I love your book oh. especially because it's so. Uh, infused with you know this infectious you know enthusiasm that we all have for movies and it's not cynical at all i love the voice in which you wrote it but let's talk a little bit about dennis hopper because uh i mean he his influence based on easy rider it kind of defined the course of your father's life and by extension your family's lives but you actually got to work with him uh so i'm curious about what what maybe surprised you most about about being near him? I think that what surprised me most was that he, I mean, in my mind, first of all, <clears throat> he was really kind of a mystical personality, somebody obviously that had been through a lot and had seen a lot and then he'd come back from it. And you always know when you're meeting people like that, they just seem on a slightly different frequency. And mm. so usually when I'm meeting people like that, everything sort of slows down for me. I mean, that was sort of what the book was about too, was honoring, you know, to me, these people were kind of movie gods. And as I've been on my own, you know, movie sort of journey, 
um, see, I can't even say journey. I have to say movie journey because, you know, whether it's, whether it's good or bad, I've kind of lived my life as if it were a movie. Um, and so uh, there's a part of my brain, it's, everything slows down, and I go, all right, this is the part of the movie where somebody imparts some really amazing wisdom on you. And for me, growing up watching the films, when I then had the opportunity to meet these people and work with them, it, you know, it came about, um, you know, as I said, I, everything slows down and I would start to think, you know, I'm going to really learn something very interesting. And with Dennis Hopper, the thing that was most interesting in the times, you know, in between um, acting with him was just that how James Dean had really uh, changed his career because I think that you know he he was very much just going to be a studio actor and then James Dean changed acting for him and mm-hmm. everything you know after he met James Dean his whole style of acting and his whole journey and how I think how the death of James Dean affected him too um, it, it's such a shame that you know Dennis Hopper isn't isn't here now because again what what I found fascinating about working with him was that he had started out like we, you know he would be talking to me about movies he made you know these very early studio films like working with George Stevens and you know Nicholas Ray and then you know doing Easy Rider and going to Cannes and having all that experience and then having that kind of fall apart going on his own kind of odyssey and then coming back in studio films like Blue Velvet and Hoosiers. And so he he had, to me, that's what was so interesting about him is that the system that originally he rejected, he came back to. But on his own terms. Yeah. And I think it's just such a shame that as he was really, all these great actors, you know, including my grandfather, Melvin Douglas, you know, you think of them as they, the different incarnations and Dennis Hopper, like, what would his third, what would an 80-year-old incarnation of Dennis Hopper mm. be? I, it's just kind of a, it, may, it makes me a little sad that, like, we were not able to see that. Like, we've seen this transition of uh, Jack Nicholson, and it's been so amazing to watch him from his early days, and then Easy Rider, and then, like, what is the kind of older Jack Nicholson like? Uh, mm-hmm. I kind of miss seeing that with with somebody like Dennis Hopper. Um, I love that you're you're saying this kind of thing because Nicholson, a lot like Hopper, I mean, he represented the alienated young man, uh, you know, in the in the 70s. I mean, those characters in movies like Five Easy Pieces, etc. And you mirror that with something like about Schmidt towards the end of his career. Uh, right. And what what a transfer! What a fascinating kind of transformation and transition he made as an actor. Amazing, yeah. I, I you know, and you and you have you know you have to you go through these. You said these different, you know, and of course the parts change, but I just think it would have been really interesting to kind of see. And also, we're coming up on the fiftieth anniversary of Easy Rider. And I think that the film itself, as all movies do, it was, I mean, you know, this is a movie that, you know, changed not only a generation of 
filmmakers, but, you know, people like my parents that saw it, and that was one of the interesting things in talking to Dennis Hopper. I said, you know, how many lives did you ruin with that film? (laughs) Because what it represented to people of my parents' generation was, you know, the message of freedom. You know, people dwell on the. It's like yes, the pop, the plot line is it's a road trip and then it's a, you know a drug thing gone wrong, but that's really like as Hitchcock would say, the MacGuffin. It, what it really represents is an anti-establishment. You know, the rise of the hippie movement, um, and that's what I think that and the rejection of capitalism. You know, it's mm-hmm. an anti-mad men, and I think that for my parents who were like, you know, late 50s beatniks living in Greenwich Village and they had just moved to Connecticut going to have like the upper middle class life, like just on the edge of that, they were like, no, we, we're going to reject all of that. And, they, and the reason they did that was because of the movie Easy Rider. And that's, to me, the, the idea that one movie can change a generation of, of people is, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, we watch, you know, people watch star Wars, but we don't think the, okay, I'm going to go live in a galaxy far, far away. It's a movie, but, but movies back then really had an impact. And I think that's what movies were for in those days. They weren't, you know, they weren't simply for entertainment. There was all, there was a time in, you know, in the late 60s and the 70s, movies were the message. They were really delivering mm-hmm. a powerful message uh, to people that, you know, you can, you know, you can live your life a, a different way. And I don't even know if Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda had a real grasp about it. It would be something I would love to discuss with them. Well, you know, it's, it's something that we discuss all the time on this show. Uh, and it's a big reason why the 70s were my favorite period of time for, for filmmaking, because these were films that engaged in the times in, 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 that they were made. I mean, they, they had something to say about uh, the culture. Um, there was a real investment in, in the world around them. Uh, and I, I look today and I think, well, what are our filmmakers saying about our world today or, and the movies that audiences flock to? What does that say about how they view the world. Well, because it's, you know, suddenly, you know, money has become more important than art. And, and for a while there, you know, it was, it was really important. Like art, you know, it didn't cost them a lot of money to make easy rider. Um, Mm -hmm. And it made money and it did, you know, and it did well. Um, And then the interesting thing is, I also think for Hollywood, a lot of people ask me, well, how did your, you know, grandfather Melvin Douglas, you know, feel about you, you know, being in a hippie commune. And what was interesting in this time of movies is you get all these creaky Hollywood versions of the hippie lifestyle, like, you know, I love you, Alice B. Toklas, which is, it's kind of not really, you know, it's, they were making those movies at the same time that they were making Easy Rider. Um, but everything was kind of breaking, breaking apart. Um, yeah, and it it'll be interesting to me with the movie. You know, I saw the movie in the '80s on television, 
and I was in high school, and I was like, this is a movie that changed our life? I mean, I didn't get it. I just thought it was, like, flat, and I I didn't understand it. But then, when you know, when I saw it, like, when I watched it in the past five years, I realized, like, much more how, what an important film it is, because it's about, you know, it, it, it really, again, it, for me, it's almost like a, it carries a little bit off from like, you know, Jack Kerouac on the road. It's, mm-hmm. it's like the mm-hmm. original, it's the original road trip movie. It's the original buddy film, you know, the bromance with the two guys. And then I think that what Jack Nicholson says is about, you know, they're not afraid of your long hair and your drugs, that what they're, what you represent is freedom. And it's very interesting that in the context of today, 2016, freedom now means the right to carry a gun and the right to be a libertarian. And I don't exact, I don't think in 1969 that's what freedom meant. Freedom then meant, you know, uh, everybody should have the right to vote. There should be equality. Freedom meant something completely different in the society and it's been interesting to me like what does freedom in america now mean i i don't think any of us are free we're tied yeah. to our phones you know number one so we're we're already you know we're walking around programmed to look at our phone which is purely a kind of an advertisement and those those are all the things that easy rider i believe you know, and I'm not sure we'd have to, of course, speak to Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda to get it right exactly. But I believe that what they were rejecting was the establishment. You know, that's what my parents were rejecting. We don't need two cars and we don't need a lot of money and because it weighs us down. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, com- I completely agree with you. And you actually mentioned something else I wanted to talk to you about, which is your grandfather. Uh, Melvin sure. Douglas, and just the thrill of being on the set of one of my all-time favorite movies, which is Being There. Was that the first oh, film God. that you, you'd ever been on? Or? Yes. So, wow. you know, again, that became, it was so interesting because it was like my parents were in their movie. They were in their hippie movie, wearing their hippie clothes and doing all their hippie things. And you know, and then my grandfather invited me. I started, you know, when he invited me to the set of being there, I went from, you know, looking at posters. I had, like, posters on my wall of all these movie people. And then now understanding, it was my first concept of understanding, oh, a movie is made by a 100 people. Like, there's this whole secret society, you know. <laughs> and how can I get in this society, which seems... You know, believe it or not, movies for me as a child represented stability, which you don't Mm. think of being in movies as stability. But because my grandfather was an established movie star and everywhere we went, people were nice to us. And, you know, and so I was like, all right, I want to be, I want to be in show business. (laughs) It seems pretty good. (laughs) You get get, you get driven to a nice car to the set, and everyone's so nice to you. you know? So, and then of course, getting to watch 
you know, Peter Sellers and and sitting there on the set and it, you know, sat you know, you're a little kid and they sat me next to Hal Ashby and it just seems so strange, of course, to later on then watch movies of Hal Ashby and have this kind of understanding of like I sat next to him when I was a little kid and wow. watching Peter Sellers and, and it was you know, the way they made movies then was very different wasn't like you know they didn't have monitors and you know you had the director you know going in there and doing business and there was a little bit more time to do something artistic and there was also the camaraderie of uh, the day that you know that I was watching the scene it was Jack Warden and my grandfather and Peter Sellers and they'd all been in the army uh Mm. you know and so they were they were sort of telling army stories. It was, it was, you know, really, really a kind of a configuration that stayed with me that I never forgot. Mr. Garner, do you agree with Ben or do you think we can stimulate growth through temporary incentives? As long as the roots are not severed, all is well and all will be well in the garden. In the garden? Yes. In a garden, growth has its season. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter. And then we get spring and summer again. Spring and summer? Yes. Fall and winter. Yes. I think what our insightful young friend is saying is that we welcome the inevitable seasons of nature, but we're upset by the seasons of our economy. Yes. There will be growth in the spring. Hmm. 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 Well, Mr. Garner, I must admit that is one of the most refreshing and optimistic statements I've heard in a very, very long time. (laughs) I admire your good, solid sense. That's precisely what we lack on Capitol Hill. You know, in that movie, uh, talk about another brilliant, prescient movie. I mean, that movie speaks to what we're living with today. Absolutely. It's, you know, again, it no longer plays really as a movie it plays and kind of like a documentary yeah people getting elected and you know being manufactured and watching television mm. and and as i say in one of the stories you know this experience i have where that movie has kind of followed me in very interesting ways and what does the movie say life is a state of mind you know is it all a movie i you know that scene that through line runs through the book in the people that I've met. Like I'm in the movies, but I've also been observing the movies. And I've also met the real people that made the movies. So it's, it's kind of, it's interesting to me. I'm both an observer, you know, I'm in the audience and I'm on the, you know, on the screen at the same time. You know, I, so, I mean, I, I don't work with, my cinematic heroes like you do, but I, I, I'm, I'm so in tune with, 
you're feeling that you're almost living living a movie or because it, in a weird way i mean i i equate big moments of my life with movies yeah so much so that you know if i'm trying to think of when did my you know for example when did my father have open heart surgery uh, it was the opening weekend of carlito's way so that had to have been november <laughs> of 93 i think that's how right. weird I, <laughs> I get with it but yeah so oh uh, completely i understand so did you when you set out to start an acting career did you model yourself after a, a particular person who who really took your imagination well when as i as i as i write about in the book i you know i got this under, you know i had this understanding you know that my grandfather was you know came from the classic hollywood studio system and the fir- the first person i gravitated to you know really oddly it made absolutely no sense was I wanted to be Ruby Keeler. That was my like. <laughs> so I, you know, I dressed the part. I, you know, I was like, I'm gonna be like Ruby Keeler, circa, you know, 1938. The only problem was it was 1979. You know, so I don't know why. Again, I always my fascination was always going back in time. Yeah, and. You know, I was I would t- talk to my grandfather, which really sparked his interest. I I, be, I was obsessed with like the the Algonquin Round Table, and he started giving me. You know, I would write him little funny letters, and I would be funny, and he gave me books about Dorothy Parker and Alexander Wolcott and Harpo Marx, and so my first, you know, it was Ruby Keeler. Then I kind of went over to you know, Groucho Marx, that was like, and I went through my Groucho phase, uh, and then I gravitated to Liza Minnelli and Richard Dreyfuss. They <laughs> were like, and it was kind of an amalgamation of, yeah. because again, you know, which if you think about it, you're like, okay, Ruby Keeler, Groucho Marx, all right, Liza Minnelli, Richard Dreyfuss, I get the transition. There's a little, a little bit there. And, um, so those were all, you know, though, for me growing up, I was, which is what I write about. I was, first of all, he did seem to be in every movie I ever saw at the drive-in. <laughs> it was like Richard Dreyfuss, mm. you know, uh, movies. And I gravitated towards him because he, he just seemed like he could be my friend. He was like a big kid. And, you know, when I saw him in Jaws, I identified him as me, you know, again, I'm not saying that's a healthy thing to do, but as I watched the movie, of course, it's a movie about a big shark and all that. But I, as I saw Richard Dreyfuss, he was just so confident and, and kind of funny and smart alecky. And I, and I identified those qualities in myself. And then I played them up after seeing Richard Dreyfuss. There's this great force of personality in those actors that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, when I saw that my grandmother took me to see The Goodbye Girl, and again, that for me, the the whole movie incorporated uh, for me everything I want. Like, okay, I'm going to move to New York. I want to be, you know, Richard Dreyfuss, like the actor, living in an Upper West Side apartment, you know, with you know, being sort of like Marsha Mason, you know, like the, those, they were, you know, they were living their dream in, 
in New York City. And I did all those things in the movie. Like I was, you know, I would have my grandmother, you know, take me to where they, and we didn't have, you know, we didn't have YouTube. (laughs) You'd have to watch the movie 80 times to go, all right, it's 78th Street. And then, you know, I'd have my grandmother take me there. And I remember like moving to New York and like really believing there would be an apartment there. Like I, I'm not going to just live in New York. I'm going to live in the apartment where they shot the good white girl, <laughs> not understanding yeah. that it's a studio. You know, that's, I like, but there was a bill, you know, at one point they're having a, you know, they have their, uh, when she gets mugged and you can see the building. Um, I did, you know, you stand outside the building and it's like those, dreams are kind of what I believe would sort of carry you through. They carried me through anyway. So then it starts to get surreal, of course, when, you know, I'm in acting school and I can't do anything right. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be Richard Dreyfuss. And then the next thing I know, I was like, I don't know what you're doing, (laughs) but keep it up. And then transition to I'm doing a movie with Richard Dreyfuss completely surreal and then of course you know as I write in the book I think I I just wore him down and you know we became friends and I've interviewed him many times and you know I adore him he's he's just so much a part of the fabric of American cinema for me he invented I believe again like just with his Oscar win for for Richard Dreyfuss um, Mm. you know very few actors have actually won an Academy Award for a comedy and uh, that was and Goodbye Girl was the last time like a kind of a straight up um, comedy that somebody you know won for for best actor and and I really believe again he sort of invented a kind of a type of like the guy the you know the not great looking guy the guy who who gets the girl by being charming and for me that that's a whole another film discussion of it ushers in a type of, you know, the Seth Rogans and the Jason Segals and, you know, you you can see the transition. It begins with Richard Dreyfus. And so a lot of like what I try to do in the book too is have it's a book for movie lovers so that they can see these patterns. You know, mm-hmm. oh okay. It's not like this guy just came along, you know, Adam Sandler didn't come out of nowhere. He actually, you could build a He came from Richard Dreyfuss. You know, you have these interesting, and before Richard Dreyfuss, you know, you have uh, Paul Muni or you have John Garfield. Uh, you know, you have these interesting, the transitions of, of you know, of actors. It, and it's fun for me. It keeps alive the movies and the movie stars if we can trace back their original origins. And Richard Dreyfuss, when when he and I talk, when we do when we do these discussions, we always bring back actors that he likes because I think it's kind of fun. Like that he he had people he was imitating, and I was imitating him, and you know. And, and he was imitating and Spencer Spencer Tracy was who he was imitating. Yes, he like yeah. he said. I he goes. I knew I couldn't be Errol Flynn, so I was Spencer Tracy. And I said, "That's so funny." I said, "I I was like, I know I can't be Christy Brinkley, but I think I can be Richard Dreyfuss." <laughs> 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 
I want to, I want to ask you uh, ask you also about Cape Fear because in the book you talk about how you know you can essentially divide your career by pre and post Cape Fear in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, Cape Fear. Uh, I mean, it's always been one of my favorite movies. I saw it eight times in the theater, and I think that's the most I've ever seen any single movie in the theater. I was just kind of wow. obsessed with it. And you're so terrific in the movie, and and particularly that just wrenching scene. And I can't – you go into detail about it in the book in a very vivid way. I can't imagine how taxing that attack scene uh, opposite De Niro must have been for you. Uh, yes, it, it was. First, uh, as I talk about it, but, but the, the harder scene, which I write about, was actually the bar scene because that was mm. first up and, you know, it was – heavily improvised and so I sort of got that under my belt and that was pretty great but the um yeah doing the um the the first day was you know 16 hours um which I was thrilled to be doing again I don't I don't know if people understand like that's why I wanted to really go into detail of you know the amount of hours you could get up early and I had to you know, I had to, we had to do prosthetics and just get, you know, getting into the character. But, you know, 16 hours of the first day and, you know, having to go back the second day. The second day is the hard day because you're like, oh, I'm going to do this again? Um, but it's your understanding of working with the camera, which I still didn't really have. I mean, because I was, you know, it was, New, so it was all like real emotion every single time. I don't, you know, I didn't know how to do it any other way. And then you begin to, as you work more and more with a camera, understand like, oh well, it doesn't have to be as full out for this angle or for that angle. But yeah, I completely lived it by the, you know, as I said, by the second day. You know, we were <laughs> the mood on the set was pretty was pretty dark, but there is yeah. no other way to, in my you know opinion, you, there's no way to accomplish a scene like that without making it real. And I luckily I had you know sort of good training, and I really had to uh, do you know what they call a prepper actor's preparation for that scene, like it all, and that is. That's what I always have found just in my own personal acting, the hardest thing to do. It's much easier to react off of what somebody else is doing. But that was a scene for 16 hours. Like, unless I'm screaming and crying, there's no scene. You know, there's, mm. <laughs> so you're all there and a hundred people are watching you. And, you know, you just can't think about pressure. You just... You have to really be in the moment and be able to do these things and let your mind wander and really kind of, you know, lose your mind, have a, you know, semi-nervous breakdown, whatever, but it's controlled. You know, Sanford Meisner described acting as, it's kind of like two, you know, a bar- like a, a, a double-barrel shotgun. And on the one side, you've got your total insanity and all your trauma, you know, that you've been through. And then the other side is your outside, your your cover, you know, your mm. completely normal day-to-day life. And you somehow, for the cameras, you can't go too far 
you know, because they're filming it. It's it's a movie. It's not real. But you have to find this balance where you're able to go into these traumatic experiences and let somebody film them. It's a very weird, you know, thing to do. I have always found it to be somewhat satisfying because you, there's a record of it. That's why I love making movies. You, mm-hmm. you it's feel, there forever. You, yeah. yeah, it's you know. Whereas, whereas when I've when I've had to do traumatic plays, I mean, I get I've I've got physically ill because night after night, you know, having to relive the same trauma uh, messes you with your head a little bit. But at least with a yeah. movie, you're like, okay, it's over. I'll never have to do, you know, that. Uh, that scene again, and then you go on to another movie, and you think, "All right, well, how can I do this a little bit differently, or how can I not repeat myself?" Who is Loretta anyway? The love of my life, no longer with us. I thought I was the love of Chopped your life. Up the fifty-two piece. <laughs> <laughs> you heard you like this, that guy? No. You heard you like this? I told you, we never did. <laughs> you heard you like this? How'd that Scandal. feel? He's a rough one. <laughs> How's this feel? <laughs> oh my God. Am I under arrest? <laughs> You're not quiet, darling. <laughs> Officer, I swear, it's all of us. guy you like this? What he did to me hurt a lot worse than this. You know, I, I, I remember reading something years ago um, where Robert Altman, who had worked with Shelley Duvall multiple times, I mean, she, she had a hard shoot uh, with The Shining. Um, and when she came back to Robert Altman for Popeye, Altman made a comment that she felt she felt like a different actress after that experience. So I know that your career changed with Cape Fear. Did you feel like you as an actress changed from that experience too? Well, I was still – and that was a movie in my own trajectory where um, I left. I mean, I think that you have the experience that because you're going to, because I did keep fear, um, I probably thought things were going to be a little easier than they were, but they weren't. It was kind of like, oh, well, that was a really good part. And you know, it's like you almost have to start all over again. It, whereas I feel like a man's career is a little bit easier. Um, you know, if you, if, if, uh, if a guy had, had, you know, sort of pops in a movie, he's been offered leads in a movie, but an, an actress's career, as you quickly, as I quickly discovered, is like, oh, it's like, I'm out in, you know, I was in Cape Fear and I think I, I described in the next, you know, in the, in the next, literally the next experience was to die for and you know Mm. fighting you know 50 other actresses some of them future oscar winners to get into to die for 
And that was the part where you you think, to me, that's the hardest part of show business is the art part is so much different than the racehorse part of, like, competing to be in a movie is so much more challenging than being on a set for 16 hours and getting to work with Robert De Niro. You know, I was so into working on that film you know, as I write in the book, I'm like, yeah, I was I was covered with like cuts and bruises, but all I thought about was making this real and making this good. It's a for me, it's a lot more challenging, uh, you know, to to go out and audition against you know 50 other people for a you know right. for a part in a movie because that's not very artistic and it's really hard to make it artistic. Um, and I and I I thought it was fun in that particular chapter two to actually describe in detail you know the process of auditioning or what like what's you know what that's like and again it's funny you know some of the people would later become my friends but you know you walk into this room and you you just try to get a part in a movie it's very challenging well you have such a unique uh infectious uh spirit and, and quality about you, I would think that people would kind of be mystified by how to best use you at times. I mean, have you found that challenging? Oh, ab- yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, that was something that, you know, I mean, I I started out as being a funny person. I mean, when I was cast in Goodfellas, I was doing stand-up comedy and I was in a sketch comedy group. You know, my dream, as I write about, was, you know, to be in a sitcom. I thought, you know, I just want to be funny. I'm funny. I'm a funny person. And then I I did not expect to be in, you know, Martin Scorsese movies and be have a kind of a semi-dramatic uh, career. But that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's – and I was also in, involved in a relationship that kind of tied me to New York and to and to Marty's films and you know being uh, you know being with him and what what that involved and so that just took my life in a somewhat different uh, direction and so then getting back to uh, comedies and doing things like that you know took a very long time but he was the person who said. I think you're going to have a challenge in your career because you're more interesting, you know, than the parts you're going to be asked to play. And I, yeah. and that turned out to be uh, true because there is no, you know, there, there was no Roz Russell anymore. <laughs> like that doesn't, you know, there is no Eve Arden. And we went through a phase, you know, where I would be cast in something because people loved my performance in Today For, but they would just keep asking me to tone it down, tone it down. And I'd be like, this is me. Serious now. Like, I can't, I'm just walking in the door. You know, I had, had an experience with a director where, you know, she said, you're just too big. And I said, you mean my acting is big? And she said, no, you, your aura is too big. <laughs> And I went around, like, I went to this, you know, with the actor in the movie. I was like, my aura apparently is too big. I don't know. What am I going to do? Like, 
my aura is too big. You know, and we were laughing about it. Like, I don't know how you make your, you know, that genuine, that kind of spark of, I'm just thrilled to be here. You know, because uh, people will try to take that away from you and tamp it down. And I, you know, I tried numerous times in the book. I talk about people, you know, the first acting school I went, you know, the teacher said, well, after you, you know, walk through your imaginary wall, I didn't believe anything you did. And I was like, you know, I, there was always an eye of me looking at the audience and going, this is Mm -hmm. bullshit, right? I'm, I'm, I'm amazing. You know, like what's wrong with these people? (laughs) That's how we feel in life too. I mean, it doesn't, it's not just the movies, you know, there's a hundred people that will stomp on you when you have enthusiasm. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just an American kind of a thing. You know, a very provincial, there's a slightly provincial quality. And this all goes back to the way I was raised. Don't blame me, blame Dennis Hopper. You know, I get into discussions with people and they go, whoa, look at you. Oh, I guess you think you know who you are. Uh, you know, and I always go, don't blame me, blame Dennis Hopper. You know, the, <laughs> when, when, um, I believe that those values were kind of instilled in me and it doesn't, it doesn't make me arrogant. It makes me confident because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm educated and I'm confident about those things. But when people, you know, people get afraid of your enthusiasm, I have, I have found that. And so you have to find different ways to kind of express it, you know, it's it's not always easy to be the enthusiastic person, um, but I just try to, you know, I try to roll with it. I've certainly been yelled at often enough times on set. And told it, told it, as I write about in the book, you know, I like the the you know one of the first experiences I had doing the, this play where the director, you know, I kept having, I was like kept pitching all these ideas, you know, it's like. You have like two lines in the play. Could you leave me alone? <laughs> but I just, I just figured like that's my role, right? I give, I give ideas. And so when I went away, the director said, "Where were you?" And I said, mm. "I, you told me I was getting in your way." And he said, he said, he said, "That's the thing about you, Liana. When you're around, you're completely irritating. But when you're not, I miss you." And I have actually, that's been one of the, like I'm like, yeah, that's my. That's my role. When I'm around, I'm irritating. <laughs> when I'm not around, everybody misses me. So. I have to ask you. Um, sure. One of our listeners wanted me to ask you a question. This is from author Annette Segalov. Ask her about action and what it was like to be the elephant girl. Wendy, hi. Hi. Mm, this isn't a good time. I'm really on a roll here. Oh, well, that's good. That's good news. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Yeah, I'm juggling three scenes right now so if you can maybe mm-hmm. come back later that'd be great three scenes that's great yeah God. well you know well look why don't you just let, let me see what you have so far that's all oh oh you know what in all honesty mm-hmm. i don't like to show people uh unfinished work it's bad luck it's writer's thing you've got nothing do you oh no i have nothing i have oh. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm s- This has never happened to me before. Ever. Adam, do you know what I used to do? You were a prostitute. Adam, do you know what a two-fingered Mexican oil job is? No. I do. Do you know what a double-knobbed rubber-bottom sex basket is? No. <sighs> I own one, Adam. Adam, have you ever had a Dominican face hat? Of course you haven't, because I'm one of only six people in the world who knows how to do it. And Adam, when you get to page 80, I will do it to you. Well, you know, again, just an amazing um, artistic experience. I went into that. Um, you know, very seriously, uh, Ted Demi was our director. Um, Jay Moore, who I had a previous relationship with, I knew, you know, we had worked on this movie, Picture Perfect. So I had a, you know, I knew him. Chris Thompson, who wrote the part for me, he said, I'm writing this thing, and then proceeded after he wrote it to try to cast another actress in the part. And that didn't work out. And then they called me to, you know, come in. And then Buddy Hackett, there was a family connection with Buddy Hackett. He had been in a show called Call Me Mister, which my grandfather had produced. So, again, it was all these, like, really, really interesting. uh, There was a lot of drama underneath the actual show in all of our personal lives, there was like a kind of a rumbling, so which is always great. But, I mean, I just adore Jay Moore. I mean, we, mm. you know, we just had this really, really good chemistry. And I love Buddy Hackett. And we were, I love Ted Demi. You know, I loved Beautiful Girls. I thought it was a great film. And he was again at the beginning of his career and we were trying to make this thing you know really really special and then I think we we all kind of just felt shocked because that was almost like again the the first time in my career where everything had didn't go the way it was supposed to go you know like when you were describing Cape Fear it was like yeah we all we got together and we worked really hard on this thing and it came out and it did really well and alive and to die for it. And we approached action with that same just complete seriousness. You know, we were Mm -hmm. in guns blazing, like this thing has to be great. And so, you know, we got all these great reviews and we went to New York and it was, we were on this high and then it was like, Oh, the ratings aren't good, and then and then it was like we were in free fall. Every everything was in free fall, and it was the first time in my career I I was shocked. I I just didn't understand the react. You know, it was the first time it didn't correlate with the movie that I made. You know, mm. you make a good movie, you work hard, you have great people in it. You're obviously trying to do something really artistic. 
and oh wow, it just didn't it just didn't come off. And it's interesting that I always I've always loved movies that like were cult classics, like you know the Heartbreak Kid and Where's Papa. I just interviewed Carl Reiner. <laughs> We got into this very lengthy discussion about where's Papa, you know, because he was saying it just didn't work. But I was, I'm kind of obsessed with that movie and what, like, why movies don't work. And then now, lo and behold, like, oh, action was one of those movies. And by the time we got to, you know, the Elephant Princess thing, Chris Thompson, may rest in peace. You know, he had so many demons. He just was like, I'm going to kill everybody off. She's going to go be, she'll go back and be a hooker, and Jay Moore is going to die. And it was, you know, it was pretty real. It was the first time, like, all the drama that was happening stage bled its way into the real world. And to good and to good and bad effect. I would have to say action out of all the things I've done in my career, I it's too difficult to watch because I love the show so much and I had such high hopes for where it was going to go. And uh, it was, a, it was probably again, you know, the, the biggest disappointment um, of my career. And after that, it changed my philosophy about movies of like, not putting so much emotionally into it because you don't really know what's going to mm. happen. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you what your how, how that informed your perspective because some people might be questioning of well, what do, what do, what could we have done differently or or some people just might say well I guess it just didn't hit at the right time or. I think that it was it was just the timing of it. It was it was the timing. Yeah. For some reason, the you know the the timing of doing the show, you know there there was a couple of things happening behind the scenes that were troubling. Like we lost, we had some executives and we lost their support. You know they moved on to other things, so that is a problem. You know when you don't have somebody fighting for you. Um, but, you know, as I mean, people speculate we were at the wrong, you know, we had originally made it for HBO. It went to Fox. You know, Fox had a maybe a different agenda of the kind of programming that, you know, that they were going to do. We, the show we were replaced with was Malcolm in the Middle, and that went on to be a huge mm. success. So... I think maybe, you know, dark comedy changed, you know. Uh, Now, if we were doing the show, I mean, what's interesting is every third show now seems to be about a person in show business with a kind of dual identity, you know. uh, There's a lot of these shows out there, but maybe action was, you know, too ahead of its time. But I don't think it had anything to do with the quality of the work. Right, right. Do you mind if I if I close off our conversation with just a couple of quick random questions? Sure. To you. Okay. Uh, I'd like to know your your favorite movie moment. My per for, my personal favorite movie moment is um, is from the bandwagon. It's probably the Girl Hunt Ballet. 
when uh, Fred Astaire is is dancing with Sid Charisse. I just think it's it's one of the most uplifting moments in cinema. It's it's just just pure. I mean, Vincent Minnelli, the sets, the dancing, the music, and Fred Astaire uh, and Sid Charisse dancing. I just think is. It's beyond cinema. I mean, it just reaches yeah. into your, just reaches into your uh, soul, and it's so beautiful. You know, again, it just it makes me, just makes me cry. It's just like you're not thinking about any of your problems or worries. It's just like, oh my God, the red dress with the. It's like just pure, you know. For that moment, you can find, you can find peace, and I think that's what, mm. you know, that's what movies. That's what movies do for you. Which actress, um, living or dead, would you like to portray in a film? And which one, if you were unavailable, would you choose to portray you in a film? <laughs> well, I was, I mean, probably the same person. I'm going to go with Betty Davis. I, mm. what I, lo- I mean, what I love about Betty Davis is that she always acted with an opinion. She didn't just act. It was like you knew there was an opinion on her, you know, when she's saying the line. She has a strong opinion about, you know, about her, about her acting, and and I I just thought she just had so much, you know, so much of a of a of a strong personality. But she also had like a kind of a troubling life. But I would be torn, even though I don't look anything like her. I think the one of the actresses that has I find to have one of the most incredible lives is probably Marlena Dietrich because she represents mm. you know she sold more we have our show called Trailblazing Women for TCM and last year we concentrated on directors this year we're concentrating on actresses with who made social contributions and you know Marlena Dietrich all, all, first of all off the screen was a housefrau who builds herself into this incredible, you know, glamorous person, transitioned her career to, you know, a stage act. But during World War II, she had this, she sold more war bonds than anyone. She, you know, traveled around. She was incredibly fearless, um, was really just instrumental in a lot of areas in entertainment in, in World War II. And so I just, I find that, her life story for me is one of the most compelling, interesting life stories. I mean, you know, Hitler wanted to date yeah. her. I mean, it just is incredible. <laughs> her, it's crazy, you know. And then when I worked with Burt Bacharach, I had a lot of questions about Marlene Dietrich. And they, you know, they were friends and they had like a kind of a friendship. And he, he really helped her you know, later in life that she developed this kind of stage act and she was, you know, she had like, she fell off a stage. I mean, she literally like put herself together with kind of, you know, scotch tape and pins uh, towards the end. She wore this dress with like a a fake body, you know, in it. It weighed about 90 pounds. They used to zip her into it. And it was all about fantasy. And and Mm. so I just think as an as like the 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 art of artifice that she had, plus the total 
realism of being in the midst of World War II and traveling around. I, I just find her life to be probably the most interesting and compelling. I'd like to see that movie. <laughs> I'd like to see that portrayed on screen. Uh, you mentioned oh, actually uh, you mentioned Burt Baccarat, uh, which leads into the the next uh, question here. Um, sure. Which film composer would you choose to score your life? Uh, I mean, possibly. I mean, it's that's so tough. You'd, you'd have to go. I mean, it's uh, there's um, of course there's Ennio Morricone, who I love. But I also love uh, currently. Currently, uh, I love Howard Shore, mm-hmm. and his, his music is wonderful. Um, but I don't know, Burt Backrack, That's a tough one. I think I'm going to go with Ennio Morricone. Well, that sounds like a pretty haunted life. <laughs> <laughs> there's just well, there's some dark the themes in there. No, well, he did the yeah. mission, which is very uplifting. Yes. Yeah, you know. yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, and finally, uh, which era of filmmaking would you most have liked to have worked in outside of you know the one that you're obviously currently working in? Uh, the fifties. The fifties is my my absolute favorite. Post war, the nineteen fifties, um, up until you know, I just I I I gravitate for some reason to 1958 again and again. <laughs> like, oh, it's 1958. But um, I find the 50s to be a really, really interesting, you know, people coming back from the war and readjusting uh, to life. And it's pre the whole hippie kind of movement. But it's the understanding, you know, which affected my grandfather. You know, they, you know, they didn't make screwball comedies after the war because once once you were aware of the you know the atrocities that occurred in Europe, things just weren't funny anymore. And so I think that that all those filmmakers that were there and actors that you know that were in, involved in World War II, it changed. You know the films just got darker. Movies like Shane, and I I, I just I find them, those psychological films to be very um, you know kind of fascinating. That's it for this episode of Movie Geeks United. You can pick up Ileana Douglas's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, online or in stores wherever books are sold.